Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuhu. This is Abdul Nasser Jengda, and you're listening to the Qalam Podcast. Before we get started with today's session, I wanted to share a really amazing resource with you. A question that everyone has, a problem that everybody deals with is, how do I focus within my prayer? How do I enjoy my salah? Well, the answer to that question, the solution to that problem is actually quite straightforward and simple. If we understand what we say within our prayer, we'll be able to focus on it, internalize it, and actually get back to enjoying our conversation with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We created a solution to make this possible. It's called Meaningful Prayer. This is a course, a curriculum, a seminar, a workshop that I taught in over a hundred locations all across this country and even in other countries. Tens of thousands of people have taken this course and it has really turned around, transformed their relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Well now, inshallah, you can take the Meaningful Prayer course online. You can take it according to your own schedule, at your own leisure. You can pace yourself. You can go back and review lessons multiple times to really be able to internalize them. Go to MeaningfulPrayer.com to sign up. Share this resource with others so that we can get back to not only just offering our prayers or performing our salah, but we can go back to experiencing a conversation and relationship with Allah. Now, to get on to today's session, inshallah, we're going to be covering the Shama'il Muhammadiyah, the prophetic personality. The following session was recorded at the Seerah Intensive. Bismillah, walhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Inshallah, continuing with our study of the Shama'il Al-Muhammadiyah, the prophetic personality. Inshallah, today we're starting with chapter number 49. Babu ma ja'a fi haya'i Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Now, before we get started, there are two things that I'd like to explain about this particular chapter. Or three things rather. Three things that I'd like to explain about this particular chapter. Number one, first and foremost, is that the way that Imam At-Tirmidhi, rahimahullahu ta'ala, has constructed this particular chapter, he brings up certain issues uh, or certain topics, certain conversations that are a little bit more uh, sensitive in nature, to use a word. Um, Another way to explain that is that they're a little bit more uh, adult-themed in nature. Uh, And being mindful of the fact that we, of course, have a family-friendly environment, uh, particularly here at Sira Intensive. Um, so inshallah, what I will be doing, uh, because I don't want to make folks uncomfortable, while at the same time uh, talking about the topic at hand, but to not make folks uncomfortable, I will be uh, speaking in code. Um, and so inshallah, I'll do my best, uh, and I will be using uh, just certain uh, different words to basically communicate certain ideas. Um, however, at the same time, the reason why I wanted to bring this up is that these are still issues that are very important for us to know. They are a part of our deen. But I also think that it's very important to have dedicated forums and venues where folks know going into it that this is going to be the topic and the nature of the conversation. Um, and so what I'd like to direct anyone to, inshallah, who is 
interested in learning about this particular uh, aspect and issue of the lifestyle of the Prophet and how it applies to our lives uh, in married life uh, in regards to intimacy between spouses, then um, we did conduct a class, uh, 10 Things to Know for When You Say I Do. Uh, it was a marriage seminar that we conducted, which is recorded and available on Qalam Now. Uh, so inshallah, folks can definitely go there, uh, log on, and um, they, there is a session dedicated to just talking about intimacy in marriage, where we talked about the issue and the topic a little bit more frankly and a little bit more forward, because again, it was a class where all the attendees and all the students knew coming into it that that was going to be the subject of the conversation. And therefore, it's not the situation where families all come together and then it's an uncomfortable situation. Um, So that was the first thing. The second thing is that I'm mentioning this beforehand, even though I will give a thorough explanation. The second hadith in this chapter, as many folks have, uh, have already taken a look at it, um, there is quite a bit of commentary on the second narration in the, the chapter. Uh, and actually, many folks will be quite uh, surprised at, you know, kind of the reality of the issue. And inshallah, I will clarify. So I just wanted folks to know that. Um, and so they don't, nobody uh, forms kind of a preconceived conclusion or notion about the particular subject, having looked at the second narration in the chapter. Number three. The third thing before we get started is just the concept of haya and modesty itself, <clears throat> which even I need to tr- retranslate uh, at least to a degree. First of all, let's just talk about the word haya because that's the Arabic word, and then we'll worry about the translation. First and foremost, the word haya comes from the word hayat. They both come from the same root. Hayat basically refers to life. Hayat means life. Haya, what is being translated as modesty, which we'll get to in a minute, comes from the same root. And <clears throat> this is why even the word haya minus the hamza that's at the end, if you look at the Arabic of the word haya'un, right, you see the ha, ya, alif, and then there's a hamza. Uh, minus the hamza, if it's just haya, the classical Arabs, the ancient Arabs, that was a word that they used to use to refer to rain, because rain brings life. So they used to refer to rain as haya. Um, and the connection between the two, this modesty, uh, if you will, for now, before we translate it more formally, um, and the relationship to life, like how, what is the exact connection? What is the relationship between these two words? So the scholars have written extensively on this particular issue. Some of the, uh, Ibn Hajar al-Haytami, he basically writes, وَبِحَسْبِ حَيَاتِ الْقَلْبِ يَزْدَادُ الْحَيَاءُ that the more alive the heart, the soul, the spirit, the spiritual capacity of a person, the more alive spirituality is within a person, the more it will increase their dignity and their modesty. The more lively the heart is, and the heart doesn't just mean like the physical heart, like in terms of physical health, physiology, but it's referring to the spirituality. The more conscious, the more spiritual, the more aware a person is, then the person's dignity and modesty will similarly be more complete. Um, in terms of a religious definition, that's more linguistically, but in terms of a shari'i, a legal, Islamic legal definition, the scholars have written that it is khuluqun, 
that it is a character that basically motivates a person, it brings a person, it gives the person the capacity to be able to avoid bad, ugly, evil things. And it actually motivates a person, it gives the person the strength and the ability to be able to do good things. And it also motivates a person to not fall short when it comes to the truth. Like it basically gives a person a commitment to truth. Um, and then there are different types of haya that he basically talks about. One of the types of haya is haya ul karam. There is a modesty or a certain bashfulness that is there because of the generosity a person has, where a person, you know, just the generosity of that person kind of embarrasses a person and prohibits them from maybe, you know, picking on someone or, you know, uh, just, just, you know, maybe coming kind of coming down hard on someone. And a beautiful example of this is when the Prophet ﷺ was married to Zainab bint Jahash, the mother of the believers, and they had the walima, and the Prophet ﷺ invited folks over to share in the walima, the feast, to celebrate the marriage. And they kind of sat there for an extended period of time, and they kept on talking and talking and talking, and hanging out, if you will. And the Prophet ﷺ was tired, it had been a long day, and he wanted to retire uh, for the evening, and also wanted to spend some time with his uh, wife, uh, who the two of them had recently been joined in marriage. And the Prophet ﷺ, the Qur'an says, you know, when it talks about, It basically says, even though it was making the Prophet ﷺ uncomfortable, but the generosity and the kindness and the graciousness of the Prophet ﷺ was such that he just could not get himself to tell guests who were sitting in his home, come on now, move it along. Time to go. Because it's, he was just embarrassed to kick people out from his home. It's just the generosity of his soul. And so that is one type of haya. Another is hayaul muhibbi min mahbubihi. That similarly a person has a certain reservedness uh, with people that they really truly love. Of course, not talking about right and wrong, good or evil, halal and haram, but just talking about maybe uh, doing things a different way. But if there's someone who is really, truly beloved to you, and maybe they're not doing things the best way that they can, there's a certain amount of just, uh, you know, softness that you have with them that might kind of hold you back from, you know, kind of snapping them and, you know, kind of correcting them. So that's a hayaul muhibbi min mahbubihi. Wa hayaul ubudiyya. And this, this type of haya is when you are the subject of someone. When someone is your superior, you serve someone. Then you have a certain amount of you know, bashfulness, a certain amount of modesty with them. And you worry about disappointing them. And you never want to do something embarrassing or disappointing to them. This haya ul ubudiyya. This is what we have with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Hayaul mar'i min nafsihi. There is a haya that a person has with themselves. And it's very interesting how they, they, they label it and how they perceive it. They view it as a type of haya. But really what we call it in English is that, you know, you don't accept anything less than the best from yourself. You expect the best from yourself. And you're disappointed in yourself if you don't put your best foot forward. If you don't do the best job possible. Right, and so there's that type of the expectation you have of yourself. They refer to that as having haya with yourself, and then there is al haya ul mahmud, which is 
you know, hayah that is praiseworthy. And that is just a general overview of the different types of hayah, which basically means, again, as we defined it earlier, that it is to want to do the best that you can, uh, to avoid things that are bad or that are uh, unpleasant, um, where you try to have the you know uh, absolute submission to Allah, you try to have good conduct and behavior with the creation, that you are always serving the truth, you put the truth before your own self-interests. Um, and that's what the Prophet ﷺ was referring to where he said, Al-Haya'u khayrun kulluhu. Haya, all of it is good. Haya is the very essence of good. It is the summary of all that which is good. And the Prophet ﷺ similarly says in another narration, Illam tastahi fasna' mashit. That if you do not have a sense of dignity, then do whatever it is that you want. Nothing will bother you at that point. If your own dignity doesn't prevent you, then nothing will prevent you. So that's kind of an overview of the topic or the uh, subject of haya. I uh, actually wanted to mention two more things. The Prophet ﷺ said, al-iman." The Prophet ﷺ says, haya is a part and parcel of faith and belief. Iman, our spiritual capacity. It is a part of our spirituality. And in Hadith of Bukhari, the Prophet ﷺ commenting on something, he said, أَنَّهُ مِنَ الْإِيمَانِ Commenting on haya, he said, أَنَّ الْحَيَاءَ مِنَ الْإِيمَانِ وَأَنَّهُ لَا يَأْتِي إِلَّا بِخَيْرٍ That haya is from faith, from belief, from spirituality. And anything that is a product of haya, that modesty, that dignity, then it is good. And it's said about the Prophet that it's very interesting. The kind of the social manifestation of that sense of haya. It said that the Prophet his haya was such that he would not stare at people. Like stare uncomfortably at people. It's kind of like, what are you looking at, right? The Prophet ﷺ didn't do that. He didn't make people uncomfortable. He didn't create those types of very awkward, uncomfortable situations. Um, but now, before we move on to the first narration, there's a little bit of a question that remains here. And that is that when we start talking about haya, and we start talking about this concept, a lot of times it can start to create kind of the notion that, you know, it's just avoiding... Um, or, or just being so cautious and careful um, that it can start to create a little bit of the notion that even if something wrong or something bad is going on or some action needs to be taken, then there's somehow the person's haya will interfere with the issue. And that is incorrect. And the Prophet ﷺ was the ultimate example of that, obviously, where Ibn Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhumah, he says, مَا رَأَيْتُهُ لَا أَشْجَعَ وَلَا أَعْبَدَ مِن رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَمُ I never saw anyone who was more courageous, nor I saw anyone who was more uh, devout in his worship than the Prophet ﷺ. Because those are the two areas where people will oftentimes misunderstand the application of hayat. That if something wrong or something bad is going on, then they're like, oh, you know, just having haya, I'm just modest, I don't, I don't like to speak out. No, no, no. If something wrong was going on, la asja'amin Rasulullah. Nobody was more courageous than the Prophet. When it came to truth, he spoke for the truth. And similarly, a lot of times people misunderstand the concept of haya, right? Where I am told, I am instructed to give the khutbah. And can you know, maybe assuming 
that I'm qualified to be do, doing so. But then it'll be like, oh, but you know, I'm kind of shy and modest and haya, right? And, and somehow like that's a good thing that la a'abada min Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The Prophet very devout. It's time to pray, it was time to pray. It was time to read, it was time to read. It was time to worship, it was time to worship. Dua, dua, khutbah, khutbah. Whatever needs to be done, you do what needs to be done. There's no haya there. The haya is then afterwards, don't be sent around signing autographs to people. That's haya. Right? So th- that, that was a perspective. Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu says, Kana ahsan al-nasi wa ashja al-nasi wa ajwad al-nas. He mentions a third area, a third area where people oftentimes misunderstand the application of haya, where it's an opportunity to be generous, to donate, to give, to be generous. And someone asks, oh, you know, they have haya, I don't want to, you know, give in front of everyone. No, the Prophet ﷺ was the best of people, he was the most courageous of people, and he was the most generous of people. The Prophet ﷺ did not have, you know, even so much so in the battlefield, a very powerful narration uh, it mentions that إِذَا أَحْمَرَّ الْبَأْسُ إِتَّقَيْنَا بِرَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وسلم. When the battle got heated, we would hide behind the Prophet ﷺ. We would line up behind the Prophet ﷺ. You know, in the Battle of Badr, we'll be talking about that, that uh, Abu Bakr ta'ala anhu, um, says, I couldn't keep up with the Prophet ﷺ. Ali bin Abi Talib ta'ala anhu says, the Prophet ﷺ would be at the front lines. And then he would rush to the back to check on everyone and he would go there and he would pray and dua and make worship and immediately get up and he would just like, he said, It was like almost like he was leaping. He wasn't even walking or running. It's like he was leaping across the battlefield, going to the front of the line. Right? So, there's, so that haya should not be misunderstood or misapplied. And then the last thing that I was going to just comment on was, translation-wise, haya is, has always been a bit challenging uh, you know, for the English-speaking community. How do we exactly translate haya? And there's a lot of different attempts at doing so. Obviously, here you see in the book in front of you, in the translation, it says modesty. And while that's not all wrong or bad, right, but it's beyond even modesty, because that's one aspect, that's one element, that's one side of haya, right? To kind of create it's like something that is uh, more lifelike, something that is more real, three-dimensional, if you will. Modesty is one dimension of it. But a second dimension of it is that the, what's referred to a lot of times, we also see this translation, like a certain bashfulness. Where somebody is, you know, kind of uh, embarrassed if you overpraise them, embarrassed of just being, you know, uh, showered with a lot of attention and public affection. They genu- genuinely don't like it. The Prophet ﷺ, when he walked into the room and everyone stood up, the Prophet ﷺ said, don't do that, it embarrasses me. It embarrasses me. We read in the previous narration that the Prophet ﷺ The Prophet ﷺ did not allow people to just sit there and just kind of shower praise upon him unless it was a situation that was deserved of it. He gave someone a gift and someone is saying, thank you very much, that's very kind of you. Okay, that's, that, that fits, that makes sense. But for someone to come and just start kind of singing your praise and you're so awesome and you're so great and oh my God and... Right? And the Prophet ﷺ would be uncomfortable with that. So there was a certain element of that bashfulness. That's one dimension of it. And the third dimension of it, the one that really fascinates me, and I feel it does not get translated often enough, because where it basically talks about even having haya with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, having haya even when you are alone by yourself, that the third dimension of haya that I would suggest, and this is just a suggestion for me, and that is dignity. 
Just having a sense of dignity, respecting yourself. That is haya. Having self-respect, self-dignity. Right? That's a dynamic of haya. So that's how kind of a more, hopefully, a little bit more comprehensive idea of how haya exactly works. Now to move to the first narration. قال المصنف حدثنا محمود بن غيلان قال حدثنا أبو داود قال حدثنا شعبة عن قتادة قال سمعت عبد الله ابن أبي عتبة يحدث عن أبي سعيد الخدري رضي الله تعالى عنه قال كان النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم أشد حياء من العذراء في خدرها وكان إذا كره شيئا عرفناه في وجهه the very first narration, just to briefly translate it, that the Prophet ﷺ had more haya, since we've talked about the, the different elements of it, had more haya than even a young woman who had never been married before, while she is uh, in her private quarters preparing for marriage, and he would dis, if he was bothered by something, you could see it on his face. Meaning just, and, and now I'll explain this, before I get into the commentary here, there's a very fascinating individual that is mentioned in the chain of narration. Abdullah ibn Abi Utbah was a very fascinating person. He was a very, very knowledgeable scholar. And he was blind. He was blind, he was a very knowledgeable scholar. And he was known as Biharul Ilm. Not Bahrul Ilm, Biharul Ilm. He was not just an ocean of knowledge, he was oceans of knowledge. And he was also the teacher, the personal teacher and mentor of Umar bin Abdul Aziz. The great Khalifa, the great leader of the Muslims, Umar bin Abdul Aziz, he was his teacher and his mentor. Um, so a very remarkable person who benefited and learned from the companion. So he narrates from Abu Sa'id al-Khudri. And I want to kind of emphasize that the words of this narration, I'll explain what I mean by this. The words of this narration are the words of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, not the words of the Prophet Okay? First of all, remember that. Now what he says is that the Prophet ﷺ had more haya than min al-'adhra. Adhra refers to a young woman who has not been married previously. Fi khidriha, the khidr basically refers to kind of like her private quarters, her private area where she would prepare for the wedding. A lot of times what they would do is um, to kind of give her, obviously the construction of homes was very different at that particular time. So they didn't have <clears throat> rooms upon rooms upon rooms like we have today. So a lot of times these were very simple folk in the desert. So if they even had you know, hard constructed walls, that was considered a luxury in and of itself. Then within those four walls, the way that they would separate different areas was that they would hang curtains. So if there was, you know, in the home, there was a woman, uh, a young woman who was getting married and for her to be able to prepare and get ready for her wedding, they would kind of put up a little bit of a curtain form, like a little bit of a private area. Not only obviously from the men folk, but also from the other women folk as well, just to kind of give her a sense of privacy so she could you know, get ready and prepare herself for her wedding. So he says that the Prophet ﷺ more hayad than even somebody in that situation, who's just very, you know, um, you know, has a certain amount of dignity and modesty and bashfulness in that situation. And the reason now I'll explain why I said these are the words of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri, not the words of the Prophet ﷺ, that doesn't somehow make it wrong or incorrect. He's a companion of the Prophet ﷺ. But understand that every he's, he's a companion. right? And so he has a per, particular background. This was an expression amongst the Arabs not to be taken very literally, but just like we have many, many different expressions. right? How we'll describe certain things. 
right? So this was a particular expression in old Arabia at that time that when somebody was very modest and very bashful and kind of shy, they would say that that person was like adrafi khadriha, that this person was like a young woman about to get married, kind of preparing for her wedding. So this is that expression. So folks should not fixate on the expression as much, but try to understand what that expression meant 1400 and whatever years ago, you know, in Arabia. That it basically just meant that he was very, very modest. He had a lot of haya. And he was very aware and observant and cognizant of his surroundings at all times. Then it says, When he was bothered by something, we could see it on his face. Now we read previously that the Prophet ﷺ would not make people uncomfortable. He would not say things to make them feel uncomfortable, nor would his body language reflect that. But see, those were the types of things and the types of situations where you know, the Prophet ﷺ maybe just didn't like doing things a particular way and someone was, like the, somebody's eating the dub lizard and the Prophet ﷺ did not like it. Well then at that time he would not try to have some type of really overt visceral reaction to make that person feel uncomfortable. But what this is talking about is somebody kind of did something that, you know, bothered the Prophet ﷺ, personally somewhat offended the Prophet ﷺ. Then the Prophet ﷺ, you know, at the same time what we understand is the Prophet ﷺ was a human being. He was a human being. And so sometimes when somebody just kind of says something very harsh to you, it, it just shows on your face. If somebody knows you really, really well, and you get home, even an hour later, you walk into the house and right away somebody who knows you really well, a family member will be like, what's wrong? What do you mean what's wrong? I didn't say anything. Yeah, but your face is telling me everything I need to know. What's wrong? Right? That. <clears throat> and what he means by mentioning that is the only way you could know that something was wrong from the face of the Prophet ﷺ because he would never say anything about it. Because again, that was just the decency, the dignity, the honor, the modesty, the respectfulness of the Prophet ﷺ. The second narration and this one, this one is the one that involves a little bit of explanation. I'll read it and translate it, but just everybody kind of, um, you know, kind of reserve judgment. قال المصنف حدثنا محمود بن غيلان قال حدثنا وكيع قال حدثنا سفيان عن منصور عن موسى بن عبد الله بن يزيد الخطمي عن مولى لعائشة قال قالت عائشة رضي الله تعالى عنها ما نظرت إلى فرج رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم أو قالت ما رأيت فرج رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم قط عائشة رضي الله تعالى عنها says that I never looked towards the private parts of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم or she said that I never saw the private parts of the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم now <clears throat> there's another narration to this particular effect that um, I'm not sure exactly, I don't want to speak on behalf of everyone, but this is a narration that a lot of times a lot of folks have heard or that they've come across or they've been told. And similarly, there's another narration similarly to this effect that folks have come across previously. And that is that similarly, it is attributed to the Prophet wasallam. Uh, or excuse me, it's attributed to Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, where she says 
that maraituhu min Rasulillahi sallallahu alaihi minni. That I did not see the private parts of the Prophet, nor did he see mine. Now, the reason why I was telling everyone to just kind of reserve judgment in regards to it, the narration that is mentioned here within this book um, is extremely weak. And even saying, that's why I'm saying extremely weak. It's not just a weak narration, it's an extremely weak narration. One of the narrators of this particular hadith was actually, I'll give you the exact commentary, um, some of the scholars such as uh, Ibn Hajar rahimahullah ta'ala, he says about one of the narrators, he says, هَذَا لَا خَيْرَ فِيهِ وَلَا بَرَكَةٌ That there's no good in this person, and there is no blessing in that person. وَهُوَ مُتَّهَمٌ بِالْكَذِبِ وَسَرْقَةِ الْحَدِيثِ That person was in fact accused of fabricating narrations and changing a hadith. And the other narration that I mentioned also is suspected of being a fabrication. Meaning it is a false narration. It was made up by someone. Um, so... Both that narration that I mentioned, he did not see me, I did not see him, and this one where I did not see um, the Prophet ﷺ in that way, these are very, very, very weak narrations at best, and in fact, there's serious discussion about them being fabricated. Now, how did they end up in this particular book? Because Imam Al-Tirmidhi is not a prophet of God. He made a mistake, Right? So we should also be very careful. Folks become overzealous and it's very, it's very um, funny. It's, 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 uh, it's comical for folks like us to then start basically critiquing Imam Tirmidhi and actually questioning you know, his scholarship and his reliability, right? Because he made a mistake, whereas I don't know anything, all right? So nobody's perfect. And that's part of the beauty of the study of our religion is that we understand that nobody's perfect. And that's why Imam Tirmidhi wrote this book, put this narration in this text, and then people came after Imam Tirmidhi, like Ibn Hajar rahimahullahu ta'ala, like Imam al-Bajuri rahimahullahu ta'ala, and many, many different other scholars. And they basically went through and reviewed his work and said, by the way, this narration does not check out at all. All right? And therefore, we correct that. Second question I'll answer, which might occur to someone if somebody does not have some background in kind of the study of the sciences of hadith and the verification of the hadith sciences, that someone just being here now for a week, you know, studying the life of the Prophet ﷺ, somebody might be very puzzled by the idea, why would anybody ever make up something about the Prophet ﷺ? Like I'm not able to fathom the motivations. If you are not able to comprehend how and why somebody would do that, congratulations, Mubarak, that's a good thing. Because it is truly horrendous. The Prophet ﷺ says in a narration that is one of the most well-documented, overwhelmingly narrated a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, that somebody who deliberately lies about the Messenger ﷺ should find their place in the fire of hell. It's a very unforgivable crime. It's a very serious offense. And to just give you a little bit of historical backdrop, I'm not going to get into into a lot of detail, but just to give you a very brief idea, there was a very 
problematic, a very delusional group that existed at one point in time during Islamic history, during Muslim history, where the Karamiya and part of their methodology, these were very delusional people, crazy people if you will, and part of their methodology, part of their philosophy was that if you have to make up something, then make it up as long as it you know, encourages people to do something, quote, quotation marks, good, what de- meaning their definition of good. That if it motivates people to do something good based on their definition of good, then it's okay, it's justifiable, the, the end justifies the means. So these were people who had very strange, bizarre um, notions of what piety and what uh, righteousness were. So apparently one of their ideas was also, you know, somehow imposing some type of superficial idea of piety and righteousness even within, one, even within the marital relations. And so they basically would fabricate these types of things uh, to give people all these weird notions and ideas. Versus what is authentically narrated about the Prophet ﷺ in the Sahih of Imam Bukhari. In the Sahih of Imam Bukhari, Rahimullah uh, Ta'ala, Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, same person that this narration is attributed to, she says, along with that, there's another authentic narration where Ummu Salama radiallahu ta'ala anha says a very similar thing, where what does she say? Kuntu aghtasilu ana wa nabiyu sallallahu alayhi wa sallama min ina'in wahidin nakhtalifu aydina fihi. And we, we, we speak about this very respectfully because it's a Prophet ﷺ and the mother of the believers. But the mother of the believers basically for our, the sake of our guidance and the, for the sake of our relationships, she shares something very private and very intimate. She says, I and the Messenger ﷺ would bathe together. We would bathe together. And that completely contradicts whatever notion this type of narration is trying to create. Very problematic. So there's no reality to this at all. This is not any type of character of the Prophet ﷺ. This is not any type of fiqh or notion of piety. But in fact, the Prophet ﷺ was very intimate with his spouses. And as I said, that is something that you know, we've talked about previously and I directed you to there. Inshallah, you can follow up furthermore over there. And the last comment I'll share is Ibn Hajar. Rahimullah Ta'ala, when kind of going through this text and talking about this narration, he says that, he just, did, you know, because he's a scholar, so philosophically speaking, he says, even if, even if somehow this narration would have checked out, hypothetically speaking, even if, even if this narration would have checked out, I still don't understand what it'd be doing in this chapter. How does that give any notion of modesty? And he says, I question my teacher. I question my teacher. How does this demonstrate any type of modesty? And he says, ثُمَّ أَجَابَ عَمَّا لَا يَنْفَعَ my teacher gave me an answer that did not make any sense at all. My teacher gave me an answer, and it's, you see, that respect was there. Okay, he's the teacher, but he also said, what you're saying makes absolutely zero sense. Right? So he said, My teacher gave me an answer that did not benefit, that did not make any sense at all. So many, many scholars have come afterwards and critiqued this particular idea. So I thought that I would clarify this and point this out so nobody would have a misunderstanding about it. The next chapter. <coughs> Chapter number 50 Babu ma jaa fi hajamati Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam 
This is the chapter about the blood cupping performed with the Prophet ﷺ. Not by the Prophet ﷺ, but to the Prophet ﷺ. And as we read the narrations, it will become more clear. Just very quickly to explain the basic concept. This is something that was a medical remedy. And after the dars, after the lesson's over, where we normally do the Q&A, inshallah, we'll uh, talk about this a little bit more further in detail, specifically But basically this was a type of remedy, a medical treatment if you will, uh, something to help maintain health that the Prophet that was practiced at that time and the Prophet ﷺ appreciated this particular practice and also the Prophet ﷺ would have it performed to him. And the reason why I translate it is because fi hajamati Rasulullah ﷺ, I don't want somebody to translate the Prophet ﷺ performing it, not that there's anything wrong with performing it as we're going to learn about, but the Prophet ﷺ never did he never applied the treatment to someone else. Rather, he had the treatment applied to him. And that's just historical fact. And the Prophet ﷺ said some very remarkable things about this particular practice. In a hadith of Bukhari narrated by Ibn Abbas anhuma, the Prophet ﷺ said, Ashifa'u fi thalafatin. That remedy is found in three things. Sharbatu asalin, drinking honey. Washartati mihjamin. That basically having this blood cupping performed. And third one was وَكَيَّتِنَارٍ And basically a type of burning or cauterization that they would perform, uh, that they would do, and that was sometimes a type of remedy. But the Prophet ﷺ said, وَأَنْهَا أُمَّتِي عَنِ الْكَيْهِ But that was prohibited. That was forbidden. The, the burning and the cauterization, because that, in, that would end up involving a lot of times people would get carried away with it, and it would end up involving mutilation that the Prophet ﷺ forbade that practice. Right? But rather the other two remain intact. And in another narration yet, the Prophet ﷺ, just overall talking about medical treatments, in a hadith of narrated by Ibn Majah, Usama ibn Sharik radiallahu ta'ala anhu says that the Prophet ﷺ said, Tadawaw ibadallah, seek out medical remedy, O slaves of God. O people, فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ سُبْحَانَهُ لَمْ يَضَعْ دَاءً إِلَّا وَضَعَ مَعَهُ شِفَاءً إِلَّا الْحَرَمِ That the Prophet ﷺ has created a remedy for every illness minus old age. There's no remedy for old age. All right? Anything people do right now is not remedying old age. It actually makes it scarier. All right, so um, moving forward. The first narration, قال المصنف حدثنا علي بن حجر قال حدثنا إسماعيل بن جعفر عن حميد قال سئل أنس بن مالك عن كسب الحجام فقال احتجم رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم حجمه أبو طيبة فأمر له بصاعين من طعام وكلم أهله فوضعوا عنه من خراجه وقال إن أفضل ما تداويتم به الحجامة أو إن من أمثل دوائكم الحجامة. أنس رضي الله تعالى عنه. In this narration, Anas رضي الله تعالى عنه was asked about someone performing the treatment of hajama, blood cupping, and then basically charging for this practice. So the money that would be earned, the fee that would be taken from performing this remedy. And he responded by saying, the Prophet ﷺ had this performed, and the one who performed it for him was a man by the name of Abu Taiba. 
Abu Taiba was a slave who was under contract to basically, and the way that it would occur, not to get into too much detail, but it was called mukataba. And what that contract would be is that a slave would basically say, uh, would go to the slave owner and would basically say, I would like to purchase my freedom, name your price. And they would negotiate a price and then he would work that fee off. So this man, Abu Taiba, who was basically in that mukataba contract, he was basically uh, working and paying off uh, the amount that the slave owner wanted in order to be free. He, this slave had become Muslim. And he knew how to perform this blood cupping. And he came and he performed it for the Prophet ﷺ. And after he had performed it, the Prophet ﷺ told the companions to reward him, to basically pay him with two saws, Okay, sa in the Arabic language is basically a measurement. It was a measurement used in classical Arabia. Because in classical Arabia, at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, they would sell food, they would trade food, not so much based off of weight, but more so off of volume. And so the sa was a measurement of volume. And what a sa represented was that one sa would be two handfuls. And so he said two saws, which is four handfuls. So the Prophet said, give him four handfuls of uh, food. It doesn't stipulate what type of food it was, but it might have been some grain or some dates or something. But he basically said, pay him with that. And furthermore, the Prophet went and spoke to the person who he was paying that contract off to. And the Prophet asked him that, how much do you have him paying you on a daily basis or weekly basis, whatever they had agreed to, what earnings does he have to bring to you? And he told him the amount, the Prophet interceded on his behalf and negotiated the amount down. So the Prophet did that as a favor to him, negotiated the amount down. Then on top of that, paid him with the food item. I'll answer the questions afterwards. He negotiated the amount down and then he brought the food items as well and said, pay this to him. And the Prophet ﷺ did actually pay him for this particular service. And then it goes on to say, وَقَالَ Then the Prophet ﷺ said, That the Prophet ﷺ said that the best remedy, one of the best remedies that you can receive is this practice of blood cupping. And or the narrator says, I don't remember, maybe he said that the, uh, the best medication or the best remedy, it works out the same way, it's just a different, amthal also means very, very good, better, afdal also means better, so it, it translates almost the same, so he doesn't remember which word he used to express the idea better, but essentially the Prophet was saying, one of the best remedies that you can apply is this cupping. Hadith number two, قال المصنف حدثنا عمر بن علي قال حدثنا أبو داود قال حدثنا ورقاء بن عمر عن عبد الأعلى عن أبي جميلة عن علي رضي الله تعالى عنه أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم قال أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم excuse me أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم احتجم وأمرني فأعطيت الحجام أجره in this narration علي بن أبي طالب رضي الله تعالى عنه says that the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم he he received the blood cupping and then he ordered me and I gave the person who had performed the cupping whatever his fee was. Hadith number three. Now, some, I know that the question might be starting to arise. Why is this even a topic? I'll explain in just a minute. Let's look at hadith number three. قال المصنف حدثنا هارون بن إسحاق الهمداني قال حدثنا عبد عن سفيان الثوري عن جابر عن الشعبي عن ابن عباس رضي الله تعالى عنهما قال إن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم 
احتجم في الأخداعين وبين الكتفين وأعطى الحجام أجره ولو كان حراما لم يعطيه In this narration, Abdullah bin Abbas radiallahu ta'ala anhuma, he says that the Prophet ﷺ received the blood cupping and he received it on either side of his neck and he also received it between his shoulder blades, so the upper part of the back. And then he gave the person who had performed the cupping, he gave him his fee. And then Abdullah bin Abbas says, and if it was haram, if it was impermissible to pay the person who performs cupping, or if it was impermissible for the person who performs cupping to charge money, the Prophet ﷺ never would have given it. The Prophet ﷺ did not engage in haram. He cannot. It goes against the prophetic orientation. He cannot. Now, why is this a question? And that, then we'll look at the rest of the narrations. Because there is a hadith in Sahih Muslim. There's a hadith in Sahih Muslim narrated by Rafi' bin Khadij radiyallahu ta'ala anhu. So it's an authentic narration. It's in Sahih Muslim. And the Nabiya sallallahu alayhi wa sallam aqal, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Kasbul hajjami khabithun. Kasbul hajjami khabithun. That the earning of a person who performs cupping is filthy. Okay. Now, what I've done there is a very rudimentary translation. So the question here now, if we do translate it as that, the earning of a person who performs cupping is filthy. Which kind of seems to give the idea that it's bad. It's not good. So how do we reconcile that with what we've read so far? And Abdullah bin Abbas clearly saying that if it was impermissible, he never would have paid anyone. How do we reconcile all of this? Right? They're all, it's all coming from authentic sources. It seems contradictory. So there's a couple of explanations, a couple of things that help us understand. They are not actually contradictory, they are complementary. We just have to understand how they complement one another. So the first way is that the translation that I did is very rudimentary. The Prophet was not talking about the earning of one who performs cupping to be filthy, meaning haram or impermissible. But he was saying the work, kasab. The work of a person who performs cupping is dirty work. Right? Because obviously... Right? Talk to a surgeon. Right? It's not pretty. You get quite literally blood on your hands. Right? So you, get your, you have to ha- get your hands dirty. And particularly at that time, a lot of times to perform the cupping, they would have like the horn of an animal. And the only way to create the suction, uh, suction now they have like machines and pumps and things like that. The only way to create the suction was with your mouth. Right? So you'd put it there. Now, of course, those who knew what they were doing, they knew how to do it without getting, you know, an early lunch. All right? That's okay. That's okay. It's okay. If it grosses you out, that was completely my intent, alhamdulillah. Right? So, um, right? So, but um, we just read the chapter on modesty as well. So, but, uh, so, but the... The way that the, the, they would create the suction was that they would have to use their mouth. Now obviously they knew what they were doing. And they would be trained in it. And they knew how not to get you know, uh, blood in their mouth and so on and so forth. But nevertheless, I mean, you would still get blood on your hands and things like that. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ even recommended that after you have cupping done, you should take a shower. And after you perform cupping on someone, you should take a shower. And there's no fiqh position. Nobody says that a shower is necessary after having cupping done. That is not something that obligates wudu, uh, obligates ghusl. 
a bath of purification on you. Right? When, when couples are intimate with, when, when, the, when the couple is intimate, they have to take a ghusl afterwards. Alright? Um, but having cupping performed to you, or performing couple, uh, a cupping on someone, does not obligate ghusl. You don't have to take a ghusl. But the Prophet recommended it. Why? Obviously because there would be blood everywhere. You have blood on you. So that's why. So it was more about cleanliness. That was what the objective of the Prophet was. He wasn't commenting on the earning of the person. He was just talking about the nature of the task. It's not pretty. It's messy. Okay? And one other explanation that is given by some of the ulama, some of the scholars that um, I found quite fascinating, and such is the nature of basically scholarship, um, that there will be you know, a diversity of thought and different approaches and different opinions uh, in these matters and in these issues. Um, and that is that Ibn al-Arabi, Ibn al-Arabi, who is a great Maliki faqih and a scholar, Ibn al-Arabi, rahimahullahu ta'ala, he's a mufassir of the Qur'an and a faqih of the Maliki madhab, he was of the opinion that if someone, and this, this actually becomes very relevant, interestingly, he says that if somebody is desperately in need of the cupping being performed, like they seriously need that treatment, like it's an emergency type situation, cupping needs to be performed for that person, and that person doesn't have money to pay for it, and then that person refuses to perform the treatment unless they pay for it and the person can't afford to pay for it. So they would rather let the person suffer rather than treat them. That's what the Prophet was talking about. Now that person, their earning will be haram. Right? Healthcare. Alright, so it actually very interesting. Ibn al-Arabi was basically advocating for universal healthcare. Anyways, so... Um, but as long as he's treating someone who can afford to pay them, then of course there's nothing wrong with that person charging them. And that kind of goes back to more of a level of humanity. It's not so much about the act, it's about the decency of the person performing the treatment. And having a charitable attitude and being human. Alright? And Imam Ahmad, rahimullahu ta'ala, he had a little bit of a different opinion and position that is a minority position, it's Imam Ahmed's position. But basically he said that, what the, the reason why the Prophet said both things, the way to reconcile them is that Imam Ahmed was saying that somebody, you know, like, like at that time Abu Taiba, the case of Abu Taiba, he was a slave trying to earn his freedom, so he was more so in need of finances, so it's okay for someone in that situation to do it. But if somebody turns this into a business... Which again is also very interesting, it's kind of profound. Basically Imam Ahmad was saying treating people, providing people remedy, medication should not be a money-making endeavor. It should only be charged for when the person actually requires the finances to just their own sustenance, to get by. But it should not be something that should be turned into a business and a money-making endeavor. Right? Which is also very interesting. So having explained that, now look at hadith number four. قال المصنف حدثنا هارون بن إسحاق قال حدثنا عبد عن ابن أبي ليلى عن نافع عن ابن عمر رضي الله تعالى عنهما أن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم دعا حجاما فحجمه وسأله كم خراجك فقال ثلاثة آسع فوضع عنه صاعا وأعطاه أجره 
that the Prophet وسلم, Abdullah ibn Umar says that the Prophet وسلم, called for someone who could perform the cupping for him. And after the person had performed the cupping, the Prophet وسلم, asked him that, again, this is, seems to be referring to the earlier case. He said, what type of payment do you owe the person that you're basically paying off your freedom for? Right? What do you owe that person? And he said, I have to basically earn and bring back three sa's of food every day. Those are the daily earnings I have to provide. So the Prophet ﷺ intervened on that person's behalf. That person, the Prophet ﷺ negotiated the owner down from three saws to two. From three to two. And on top of that, then gave the person some food as well. Look at the generosity of the Prophet ﷺ. He not only paid the person on the spot, but also was concerned about the long-term well-being of the person. The next narration... قال المصنف حدثنا عبد القدوس بن محمد محمد العطار البصري قال حدثنا عمرو بن عاصم قال حدثنا همام وجرير بن حازم قال حدثنا قتادة عن أنس بن مالك رضي الله تعالى عنه قال كان رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يحتجم في الأخداعين والكاهل وكان يحتجم لسبع عشرة وتسع عشرة وإحدى وعشرين in this narration, Anas ibn Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu says that the Prophet ﷺ would have the cupping performed on both sides of his neck and also at the top of his back, the upper back. And the Prophet ﷺ would have the cupping performed on either the 17th, the 19th, or the 21st of the lunar month. قال المصنف حدثنا إسحاق بن منصور قال أنبأنا عبد الرزاق عن معمر عن قتادة عن أنس بن مالك رضي الله تعالى عنه أن رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم احتجم وهو محرم بملل على ظهر القدم In this narration, Anas ibn Malik رضي الله تعالى عنه he narrates that the Prophet of Allah صلى الله عليه وسلم had the cupping performed while the Prophet ﷺ was in a state of ihram. The Prophet ﷺ was in a state of ihram. Bimalal. Malal is a place, as the translation has listed for you there, it's a place between Mecca and Medina, closer to the city of Medina. He had departed from Medina, he had assumed the state of ihram. And then he stopped at the place of Malal and he had this cupping performed and he had it done on the back of his leg. He had it done, fi ala dhahri al-qadam, he had it done on the back of his leg. Potentially or possibly due to maybe some type of pain that he was experiencing there. Alright, and so he had it done on the back of his leg. There's a bit of fiqh that we take from this particular narration and I was commenting on something somewhat related to it where I basically said that the having the cupping done is not something that violates the ghusl, the tahara of a person. Similarly, we learn from this particular narration that it does not violate the state of ihram, which a bigger lesson that we can kind of take from it is that yes, ihram, when you are in the state of ihram, it is a state where you should be very cautious and careful. Um, but of course, if somebody needs some type of medical attention, they need some type of medical procedure or remedy applied or performed, then they absolutely should do so. The ihram does not prevent somebody from seeking some type of medical attention. Right? And again, a lot of times you see people who will be very paranoid about things like this, and that is nothing short of fanaticism. That is nothing short of fanaticism. We don't have that in La Rahbaniyat of Islam. We don't have that type of you know, monasticism and fanaticism within the religion of Islam. 
right? Where we somehow piety or worship or something somehow requires us to basically kill ourselves. That, that, that's not how our religion works at all. And the Prophet ﷺ, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala shower his peace and blessings upon him, demonstrated that for us, for our benefit, so that we could learn from it.